This is a Woodside Church podcast. Thank you very much. It's uh, really lovely to be with you. Um, been to Bedford before, but not been to Woodside. So lovely to come and uh, join you for this evening. And thank you for giving up an evening to wrestle with some uh, big topics. We're going to hopefully stretch our brains a bit, really engage some stuff, but also really engage our hearts as well. And I'm kind of aware of this um, love series you've been doing. Martin's told me quite a bit about it. I've listened to some of the sessions and just so excited to see a church saying, no, we want to take good time to really wrestling with what are real life issues for us in the church and then more broadly as well. And I know you took a couple of weeks near the start of this series, I think it was, to talk about the topic of uh, homosexuality, looking at what does the Bible say, and then what are kind of some of the big questions or big problems or big objections that people raise. And actually, I think often one of the biggest questions people ask if they hear what the Bible says about sexuality is actually the question just, is it plausible? Does it really work? Is it really something that can be lived out in a way which brings kind of a life-giving nature of following Jesus? Can we really expect, or can God really expect, gay people or same-sex attractive people to live out what the Bible says? Actually, not engaging in a same-sex relationship, not engaging in same-sex sexual activity. And so the question becomes, well, is it plausible? Which means, ultimately, it's a question about singleness. When you boil it down, one of the key things we think when we think about the teaching, Bible's teaching of sexuality is about singleness. Is singleness really good? Is living as a single person and a celibate person, so we're not having sex, really a, a plausible way of living our lives? And so getting singleness right is vital to getting sexuality right. They're almost actually two sides of the same coin when you're talking about the biblical teaching and how we then put that into uh, practice, which is why tonight we're talking about sexuality and singleness. And in some ways, we're going to talk a lot more about singleness, because actually I'm convinced that's the place we need to focus in order for the sexuality stuff to kind of fall into place. Which means also, of course, there's much broader relevance. Being same-sex attracted isn't the only reason and some of us follow Jesus as single people. And so for all uh, different kind of contexts, in all different ways, different ones of us here and in different church contexts will find ourselves as singles. And this question of, is singleness uh, good, is a live issue for many of us. And I kind of think singleness is one of the great overlooked topics in churches. That's slightly, slowly changing, which I'm finding really encouraging to see. But it's a topic we haven't tended to think about or talk about. It's the topic we tend to tag on the end when we've talked about marriage. I think we ought to think about singleness if we mention marriage. But in reality, that's often what we've done. But singleness is important for all of us to engage with. And that's important to get out there right at the start. This isn't just relevant to people who are themselves single. And there's a few reasons why that's definitely the case. One is that singleness is a universal part of life experience. All of us live the first chunk of our lives single. And statistically speaking, a majority of us will live the last chunk of our life single as well. This is real life for all of us, one way or another, in our lives. It's also important for all of us to engage with, because singleness is becoming more common in the world around us, and yet that's not reflected in the same way in the church. And so a study a few years ago found that in, um, in the UK, 47% of the population are married, but 57% of weekly church attenders are married. So about a 10% discrepancy. And they found that 20% of weekly church attenders have never married, but 29% of the UK population are never married. So there are 10% more singles in the world around us than there are in the UK church, 
and 10% more married people than there are um, in the world around us, which might suggest we're not quite doing church in such a way and preaching the good news of Jesus in such a way that it really does seem like good news to singles and like a good life-giving way of living life. That should kind of cause us to stop and think, we all need to think about this. And finally, just all of us need to engage this topic because we as church, as family, as church, are called to love and to care for one another. And you can really only love and care for people if you've got your head around in some, to some extent what life is like for them. And so for all of us, whether married or single, think about what would it feel like, what is it like to live as an adult Christian following Jesus, someone who's single, is really, really important for us. And so the fundamental question we're going to look at together is the question, is singleness good? And even as that question gets thrown out, I think there will be a mix of answers. If we went into Bedford today and asked people, is singleness good? We get a mixture of answers. Some people would say, well, yeah, obviously it's a good thing because with singleness, you've got freedom. Your time is your own. Your money is your own. You can do what you want. But I think also people would say, I'm not sure singleness is good because you're on your own. You're going to be lonely. We could come into the church. We can ask Christians, is singleness good? And we're likely to go, well, yes, obviously, because the Bible says it's a gift. But also we say things like, oh, it's such a shame they've not got married. We can easily have the same assumption that singleness equals loneliness. What I've noticed more recently uh, is when people, when someone's child gets married and they say, or someone says to them, oh, that one's sorted. With the implication that the rest of us aren't yet sorted because we're not married. The underlying assumption is marriage is the goal of success. Singleness is a problem to be solved. We're actually often very kind of confused, I guess, in what we think about this. And so today I want to look at the biblical answer, is singleness good? But then also we need to look at kind of the practical stuff, well, how do we live that out? Because we get what the Bible says, but then how do we make that become a reality? And what part do all of us play, whether married or single, actually to help that become that kind of reality? Before we dive into that, let me tell you a little bit more about myself, why it's something I really care about, love to wrestle with, love to get the real privilege like this to uh, teach on and talk about and how in my own life, the kind of intersection of sexuality and singleness has been really significant. So I grew up in um, a church up in Hastings, where I now um, serve as an assistant pastor. And as I kind of looked down the timeline of my life, I assumed that I would get married in my early 20s, settle down with a decent job, have a few kids. That seemed to be what everyone around me did. It seemed to be kind of the good Christian thing. It seemed to even be what was kind of implied from the pulpit is the right thing to happen as a follower of Jesus. And then I reached my early teen years, and I found that I'm same-sex attracted, or I'm gay. So my romantic and sexual desires are for guys rather than for girls. But at the time, and still as I've wrestled and studied the Bible, I believe that God says that sex and romantic relationships are for marriages between one man and one woman. And so I had to start going on this journey of, okay, well, what does it actually look like? And for me, I guess the first stage of the journey was working it through theologically, kind of in my um, upper teens, I had to do that. I was actually put in this interesting situation when I studied A-level RS, and we did a whole half of our year on Christianity or homosexuality. I was the only guy with a class of 11 girls, none of whom believed what the Bible said or what the Bible said, and suddenly I found myself there as a closeted gay guy having to defend what the Bible says about sexuality. But I had to really wrestle with, what does the Bible say about this? And as I did that, and I continued to do that for years and years, I'm thoroughly convinced the Bible has a good message about sex and romantic relationships being for one man, one woman in marriages. And then really it's when I went off, I lived in the northeast for four years, did impacts, did uni, and it was over those kind of years I really began to wrestle, not with the theology so much, but the practicality. Okay, that's what the Bible says, but then what does it look like to begin to actually live this out? And where this kind of sexuality and singleness stuff came together. 
is it plausible to live my life with someone who's not going to have a partner, someone who's not going to have sex? Can that really be a kind of life-giving way of following Jesus? And began to kind of experience actually how I can experience loving church family, how actually being single doesn't mean missing out on the experience of family. All kind of different things which we'll come on to of what makes this plausible later. We began to kind of work through actually this, this can be a life-giving way of living life. And so in a sense, although um, my own experience is uh, around sexuality, what I'm most passionate about helping the church with is singleness. Because singleness is, I think, the key to unlocking actually uh, fulfilling life with Jesus for someone in a situation like mine. And actually, we're speaking into a culture and bringing a certain view in sexuality. In a sense, we need to bring the solution as well. The Bible, the world's view on this is a solution to perceived problems, which is problems of loneliness, you haven't got a partner, and all these kind of things. If all we say is that solution is wrong, we lead the problem. You kind of expose a wound, as it were. We need to come, and the Bible has a better narrative, a better answer, a better way for legitimate needs to be met, and that's kind of what we're going to look at. Before we dive into what the Bible says, I'm going to give you two minutes to turn to the people around you and to discuss, not the question, is singleness good? Challenge yourselves do you really believe this singleness is good? So it's not you know, the textbook answer that you know you should say, but deep down in the things you say, the things you do, do you really think that singleness is a good thing? And then we'll see what the Bible says. So just two minutes in little groups, have a think about your own deep beliefs on this. Okay. I'm always encouraged when there's a good hubbub. That was a good uh, engagement with that. I'm not going to ask you to show hands uh, of what you really think. Uh, but we are now going to turn, what does the Bible say? If we take, if we say our, our fundamental question is, is singleness good? What does the Bible say? And actually, that's not an easy question to answer. Because at a first glance, what the Bible says in this can be a bit confusing. Because there's times when the Bible seems to see singleness as a really bad thing, even actually as a curse. And you look through the Old Testament and nobody voluntarily remains single. Singleness and childlessness, I think, is a very negative thing. But then also, we know the Bible talks about singleness as a gift. The Apostle Paul actually talks about singleness being preferable even to marriage. And so we get this kind of tension of, well, is it good or is it not? And we might kind of think, well, we notice that the bad view tends to be the Old Testament, the good view tends to be the New Testament. We know we're meant to side of the New Testament in times of that, so it's probably that. But that doesn't ask the question of why. Why is there seemingly a diversity, almost, of views actually in the Bible? And to kind of get our heads around that and to really understand what the Bible says to us as followers of Jesus today about singleness, you've got to remember the Bible contains 66 books and there's a story, a narrative running through, a story from creation through to new creation. And actually it's by tracing the theme of singleness and the the development of that line of the story that we can really understand how it works for us. So I'm going to try and take us on a a whistle-stop tour of that journey together, that story together, so we see how today it applies to us. So of course the story starts at the beginning with the creation. God makes everything, everything's perfect just as it should be. Plants this beautiful garden where he places the first human, or the first two humans, Adam and Eve, and everything is just as it should be. It's God's people living in this perfect world with a perfect relationship with him. But of course, we know, chapter 3, things go very wrong very quickly. That the humans fail to trust God. When he says, here's the best thing for you, they listen to another voice which says, this will be better for you. They rebel against God, and so God has to pronounce judgment. They get cast out of the garden, separated from God. But the really important thing is, God makes this long speech in Genesis 3, as he has to enact judgment for what's happened. 
And early in this speech, he speaks to the serpent, the one who came and tempted Eve, and in a sense, the one who started the whole problem. And he says to the serpent, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He's saying that something's going to happen which is going to destroy the problem or is going to destroy the one who started the problem. And that's going to happen through a descendant, through a child who's going to come. So this means that from the third chapter of the Bible, all the hopes of things being put right are pinned on childbearing. Right from the third chapter of the Bible, having kids is really, really important because God says it's through that family line that actually he's going to come and solve the problem that's come into the world. The story goes on, Genesis 4 to 11, a kind of this cycle of humans sinning, rebelling against God, God being gracious and doing good to them, even though they're undeserving, until you reach Genesis 12. This vital point where God calls Abraham a wandering nomad who becomes Abraham and makes to him a set of incredible promises, what we call a a covenant, an agreement between God and Abraham. And this covenant, if you kind of look at what the promises are, they're a reversal of what's gone wrong when humans sinned in the garden. They're going back to plan A. There are God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. It's taking us back to what we were always meant to experience with God. And what's really significant in this covenant with Abraham is God makes these promises, and it's an unconditional covenant. God says, I am going to do this. No matter what happens, no matter anything that comes, I am going to do this. I am going to make this happen. And these promises include the promise of the land that God will dwell with his people or his people will dwell where he is. The promise that he'll bless them, he'll be their God, they'll be his people. And really importantly is a promise of offspring. Uh, Abraham's told he have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the grains of sand in the seashore. The coming of lots of offspring, lots of descendants, lots of kids was utterly vital to the fulfillment of God's promises. So once again, we find actually God's plan to get us back to where we should be, where what he's designed things to be, to undo the mess that human sin has created, is dependent on childbearing. So once again, having kids, which in the Old Testament context means being married, is really, really vitally important. It's the way that God is going to fix everything that's gone wrong. Story continues a bit more, and Abraham does have a son. They do become quite numerous, so much so that when they reach the land of Egypt, Pharaoh gets a bit kind of twitchy feet, a bit worried about actually getting a bit too strong, a bit too powerful, and so he enslaves them. That's the point at which he raises up Moses to go to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. We have the plagues. Pharaoh lets them go. Eventually, they cross over the Red Sea. They're now God's people, freed from slavery in Egypt, being with him. And when they get to Mount Sinai, God makes another covenant. So another agreement between God and the humans. But this one's quite different. With Abraham, God said, I'm going to do this no matter what, an unconditional promise. I'm taking it upon myself to do this. When it comes to the covenant at Sinai with Moses and the Israelites, it's conditional. It's an if you do this, this will happen. But if you don't do this, this will happen. So he says to them that if they keep the law, they will experience his blessing. But if they don't keep the law, actually they won't experience blessing, they'll experience curses. And when you look at what the blessings they were going to get for being obedient to God's law were, really uh, kind of up front and centre, really vital in those blessings was the blessing of fruitfulness, particularly fruitfulness of the womb, i.e. having children. God says, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle. 
He says obedience is going to lead to fruitfulness, to many descendants, many children. So at this point in the story, having children becomes a a sign, a key marker of being in the people of God and being under the blessing of God. And on the converse, at this stage in the story, to not have kids actually is a sign of being outside of the blessing of God, outside of the covenant. So this is why in the Old Testament, nobody chooses voluntarily to remain single. Because you're choosing to put yourself in a situation which no one wanted to be. You're choosing to make yourself look like you're a covenant breaker rather than a covenant keeper. It's why having children was really, really important. It was all part of that thing of God was kind of beginning to fulfill his promises in a kind of physical way of creating this people who would be his people. And therefore, singleness was viewed as a really, really bad thing. That's why we get the very negative view of singleness in the Old Testament. And so from Sinai, the story continues, and it's another cycle. It's time and time again, the Israelites rebelling against God, worshipping other gods, sinning. But time and time again, God being gracious. He sends judges, he sends kings, he does all kinds of things to rescue them out of the mess they get them into, themselves into. But it reaches a point where they've just kind of so continually rebelled against God, their rebellion has become so great that God has to act decisively. And that's where he allows the exile. So he allows the Assyrians, the big guys up here, to come invade the northern kingdom. A bit later, the Babylonians to come invade the southern kingdom. A load of them are carted off into slavery. The cities destroyed, the temples destroyed. Everything kind of falls apart. And it's around this kind of time in biblical history that the prophets start coming, or the writing prophets start coming. The guys who brought God's messages to the people. They're kind of God's mouthpieces, or his megaphones, bringing his words to the people. And the prophets begin to speak of a singular offspring from whom will come many offspring. So there's been all these promises about many offspring. Well, now there's the promise of a singular individual offspring. And from him will come many, many offspring. And so we see this, for example, in Isaiah, in a section we call the servant songs and kind of the middle-ish of the book. And particularly there's a song of the suffering servant, where this figure who's going to suffer and die on behalf of others speaks. And we're told in Isaiah 53.10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. That's a really weird statement. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, I, when he dies, he'll see his offspring. Somehow a death is going to come, and from the death will come lots of offspring. From the one will come the many. But in some sense, not physical offspring. There's something different about these offsprings coming. And you read through the narrative in uh, Isaiah, and when this one individual comes, and when they die, as that passage talks about, suddenly some incredible changes happen. And so that suffering serving song is in Isaiah 53, and immediately in Isaiah 54, you get the song of a barren woman. So a woman who hasn't got kids, who remember in this context, therefore, is deemed as being under a curse. In this situation, no one wants to be, and she's told the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who's married. The woman who's not married, who's not got biological kids, is going to have more kids than the woman next door who's got lots of little sprogglings running around her. And she's told, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. The situation of this woman who was single and without children, who previously would have been seen as under a curse in the, kind of one of the worst situations imaginable in ancient Israel, suddenly is greatly, greatly favoured. Her situation has been radically changed. And it's not just the women, the guys get in there as well. Two chapters later, Isaiah 56, God speaks to eunuchs. So men physically unable to father children. 
And he says to of them, God will give a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Sons and daughters is what everyone wanted. That's a sign that, yeah, I'm under the blessing of God. Well, he says, these single guys are going to get something even better than having sons or daughters. This one offspring is going to come. From one will come many. And somehow that will radically change the situation of single people in the people of God. And the prophet stopped speaking, probably with Malachi, and there's about 400 years of silence and of waiting. And they're just waiting and waiting and waiting until the day that Jesus comes. And Jesus comes as the singular offspring of Abraham. He lives and he dies. He's raised to life. And in Galatians 3, the apostle Paul explains to us some of what was going on. He explains that the promises made to Abraham were made to Abraham and his offspring, but it didn't mean this huge group of offspring. It meant a singular individual offspring. God was looking kind of beyond Abraham. It's that awkward thing when someone looks at you, you think they're waving at you, you wave back and actually they're waving at the person behind you. God was talking to Abraham, but beyond Abraham, the promise was to the offspring. The promise was to Jesus. And so Jesus inherits all the promises made to Abraham, all the promises to restore us back to what God created us for, where we're meant to be. And in his life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus does everything that's necessary for those promises to be fulfilled and for them to be received. And Paul tells us at the end of Galatians 3 that when we put our faith in Christ, we are united to him. This is Jesus, this is you, faith in him, united to him. And because Jesus has inherited all of the promises to Abraham, the fulfillment of all of them, if you are in him, you receive them too. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to promise. And so this means that everything is changed. It's no longer about physical links and physical descendants. It's no longer about keeping the law. It's no longer about having kids to show that you're under the blessing of God. The only thing that matters is you are united to Christ by faith. He's inherited all the promises, and now you inherit all of the promises through him. From the one who suffered and died come many offspring, just as Isaiah had said. And therefore, singleness and childlessness are no longer a curse in the new covenant for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Because the true fulfillment of all of God's promises actually doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come through having children and being married. It comes through union with Jesus. And so life today as a Christian single is a declaration to the world that Jesus has changed everything. That we don't need a spouse, we don't need children to be under the blessing of God because Jesus has changed everything. It also, as it happens, declares what to come. Jesus says that in the new creation there won't be any marriage. Actually, marriage, which is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church, that relationship will, in a sense, fade away as we experience the true relationship to which it's pointing. When an architect has built his great building, he doesn't need the little model anymore. He just enjoys the actual thing. When we're enjoying the union of the lamb and his bride, we will no longer long for human marriage. And so Christian singleness today is a, a foretaste of and a, a picture of what all of us, or how all of us will be living in eternity when we are united to Christ in that way. And this way in which the story progresses and Jesus comes and changes everything explains what Jesus says on singleness and what Paul says on singleness. So Jesus talks about this in Matthew 19. It's a case or a story where the Pharisees have come to test Jesus. They don't like him. They want to catch him out. They want to get him in trouble. And they think divorce is the perfect controversial topic to talk about in order to do that. 
And so they say, Jesus, is it the case that a guy can divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus says, no, of course it's not. Haven't you read in the beginning God, uh, how God brings the two together in one? He says, you shouldn't separate what God has united as one. And the Pharisees think they've got Jesus. And they object, oh, but Jesus, the Old Testament law says we can just give our wives a certificate of divorce and kind of be done with it. And Jesus says, yeah, that's true. But that was because of your hardness of heart. That was never the design. That was never God's heart and God's desire. He's actually to divorce and remarry. And he puts in the kind of caveat of if the covenant's been truly broken already. Actually, if it's not, that's to commit adultery. And he kind of raises the stakes so high in marriage that the disciples think, oh, man, Jesus is he's overdoing it a bit. This is a bit too harsh. He's gone a bit too far again. We need to kind of get him to rein in a bit. And so they say, oh, Jesus, Jesus, if such is the case of a man of his wife, it's better not to marry. They want Jesus to go, oh, guys, you're right. I should just, I should just change that a bit, shouldn't I, really? And he doesn't. He goes, exactly. Exactly. In many ways, he says, actually, it's better not to marry. But he says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom is given. He says, actually, this is a, a weighty calling, but actually God empowers us for what he calls us to. And he then gives three examples of single people. He uses that figure that Isaiah talks about, the eunuch, strictly speaking, a guy who's unable to father children, and gives three types of eunuchs. He says there are some eunuchs who are eunuchs from birth, people without, born without the ability to uh, produce children. There are some eunuchs made eunuchs by men, talking about the ancient practice of castration. But then the really radical one, he says there are some eunuchs who will make themselves eunuchs, who will choose to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And you've got to remember how radical that is, because at this point, everyone's wanted to be married. Everyone's wanted to have children. That's been under the blessing of God. Jesus says, no, some people would choose not to partake in any of that for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's one of those stories you're meant to think you can hear the gasps as Jesus says this stuff in his day. But Jesus knows he has changed everything. And it finishes with this wonderful line. Jesus says, let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. The one who's able to hold this and comprehend this, to take hold of it, let him take hold of it. And I think Jesus is laying down the challenge of those who could choose to do that for Jesus, should do that. Which, interestingly, I think is the opposite of what we say in the church. In the church, we say, if you can't find someone to get married to, you have to be single. I think Jesus is saying, if you think you could give your life to being single to serve me, then you should. A huge challenge and the complete opposite of what we've often thought or how we've often taken things. Jesus sees singleness as a good thing empowered by God because he knows he has changed everything. That's Jesus' view. And then Paul also. Apostle Paul has a very positive view on singleness. He talks about the topic in 1 Corinthians 7. So a letter to a church in Corinth in a right mess, all kind of things going on. He's working through various topics. Quite a complex chapter about divorce and remarriage and singleness. But if you distill it down, he's communicating on the topic of singleness. He's communicating two things. One is he wants us to get that his personal preference is for singleness. He thinks singleness is better. He says, I wish you all were as I myself am, meaning he wishes they were all single like he is. And he gives some reasons as to why that is. And he's really keen to put out marriage is still a good gift. There's nothing wrong with getting married to end your marriage. But actually, he says singleness is a good thing. Singleness, actually, he thinks is a better way of living life. But even if he says that, he's really aware you could totally misunderstand. You could draw all kinds of wrong conclusions from that. And so even while saying, I think singleness is better, he also wants to clear up a few potential misunderstandings. 
One of the big misunderstandings is the idea that you can be single, but you can still be having sex, which in Corinth, where Paul was writing to, would be a very common view. A kind of high-status Roman male would get married in order to produce a legitimate heir, and after that, basically had the freedom to sleep with any person, male or female, they wanted to, so long as they weren't somebody else's wife, and so long as they weren't a freeborn Roman male. So the idea of being single and having a lot of sex would have been very normal in Corinth. Paul doesn't want them to hear him say singleness is better and think, oh yeah, because I can be single and still be having loads of sex. Paul says that for a Christian, singleness means celibacy, means choosing not to engage in sexual activity. That's why some of the places in the chapter, Paul talks about actually uh, an intense struggle with sexual desire is a reason to consider marriage. And I've got to take that rightly. It doesn't make any form of marriage legitimate. It's not the only thing Paul says about marriage by far. And it's not what marriage is about. Marriage isn't just there for the expending of sexual desire. But he shows actually sex is only appropriate in a marriage context. And that's why he says those things. It's not true that you can be single and still have sex as a follower of Jesus, is the clarification he's making. The second potential misunderstanding he's worried about, as he says, singleness is preferable, it's better even than marriage, is he doesn't want people to misunderstand and think singleness is somehow kind of spiritually superior. He doesn't want people to think, well, yeah, the singles are the ultra-holy people. They get really close to God, and anyone who's married can have this extra level of separation from him. He's really clear, you're free to marry. If you want to get married, he says, that's fine. It doesn't put you in a different position with God. He's really clear that existing marriages should stay together. That's why the first few verses are basically saying married people keep having lots of sex. Because marriage is a good thing, and you don't need to break off your marriage to get closer to Jesus. It's why he says to those who are married to non-Christians, actually, so long as the non-Christian is happy to continue in this marriage, keep the marriage there. The marriage is a good thing. It's also why you read through a chapter on divorce and remarriage and singleness, and suddenly in the middle, there's this paragraph where Paul talks about circumcision and slavery. And you're kind of thinking, Paul, keep your mind on the task. We're talking about something else here. But actually, it's a very purposeful uh, um, paragraph in that chapter. Because the point he's making is, you don't need to change the situation of your life when you come to Jesus. Because actually, your coming to Jesus was never based on your life situation in the first place. So he said, actually, if you were circumcised when you came to faith, stay circumcised. Well, uncircumcised, say uncircumcised, because those things aren't the things that commend you to God. If you were free from slavery, stay free from slavery. If you were a slave, stay as a slave, although he points out there's no harm in getting free if you can. The point he's making is it's good to stay in the situation you're in, because it's a declaration to yourself and to the world that that stuff isn't what your relationship with Jesus is based upon. And so being single doesn't make you spiritually superior and get you closer to God. It's preferable in some practical ways, actually, he says. But it's not a a better spiritually way of living life. And Paul also in that chapter lays down the practical things. If it's not spiritually superior, it doesn't get you closer to God, why is singleness actually such a good thing? He has a few things to share there. He firstly talks about a present distress which probably means literally there was something happening in Corinth at the time. Some historians think maybe a famine, and just the idea of there's such difficulty, it's not a very wise thing to uh, connect yourself to someone else, to have dependence. Which is also a challenging thing to us, I think, actually. Are there many situations where, in practical terms, we'd say marriage isn't the right thing at the moment? Just an interesting question to ask ourselves. Then he talks about time has grown short. And this isn't kind of, you know, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, so why bother getting married today? Or Jesus is coming back, look busy. This is something is happening. 
a new age has broken in. This time is different. Time is at a premium. This time is special. And that should affect the way we live our lives. It should affect our priorities and our, our motivations, the things we give ourselves to, including, he's saying, our relationship status. And linked to that, the final reason, a, a really down-to-earth practical reason, he just says singleness gives a certain level of freedom from anxieties. He says people who are married are rightly concerned about their spouse and caring for them, but actually someone who's single can have, he says, undivided devotion to the Lord. That's such a beautiful phrase, undivided devotion to the Lord. He's like, actually, here is incredible opportunity, actually, in following Jesus. Sam Albury, who's written a brilliant book on singleness, he points out we tend to define singleness as the absence of something, the absence of a partner, the absence of a spouse. Paul here defines singleness as the presence of something, the presence of opportunity. Paul puts it completely in the positive. Actually, look at the opportunity of singleness. Not look at the things you miss out on. Look at the opportunity of singleness for undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is really clear. Singleness is a very good thing for followers of Jesus because he knows Jesus has changed everything. He knows the story. He knows what Jesus has done. So we ask of the Bible, the question, is singleness good? We get a loud and clear answer that for us, after the resurrection of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, singleness is a good thing. Jesus has changed everything. To be single, to not have children, is no longer a curse. It's no longer to be outside of the covenant in that way, because actually we receive all the blessings of God, the fulfillment of all of his promises, the restoration to what was meant to be through union with Christ. What he has becomes ours as we are hidden in him. And therefore, both marriage and singleness are good, and both marriage and singleness are gifts to us corporately as humanity. They're there to teach us and demonstrate to us important uh, points. And the reality is, I think marriage is probably God's intention for most of us. But the reality also is, there will be some of us who do remain single for our lives, and God says that is good and purposeful, and that can be a truly life-giving way of living life, whether that is for part of life or whether that is for the whole of life. And so the Bible answer, in that sense, when you get your head around it, is really clear. Singleness is good. Which leads us to a, a next kind of big question, which is, if singleness is good, it's a good gift, a good way of living life, why is that often not the way we think about it in church? Why is it often not our experience in church? Why do we often see singleness as a problem to be solved rather than a, a gift to be enjoyed? And that then links into questions of sexuality. If following Jesus as someone who's same-sex attracted or gay will often mean singleness, then can the gospel really be good news for gay people? Is the gospel really good news for our gay friends and neighbours? These are real-life questions of, does this actually work when rubber hits the road on the ground? And I think the answer is, yes, it does work. But I think sometimes the reason we don't experience it in that way is we've kind of got all the stuff around singleness not quite right. There's a low hold of this stuff that goes alongside what the Bible says on singleness, which makes singleness plausible, makes it work, which means actually, on its own, it doesn't work. It's a bit like um, if you gave a child a nice little um, Brio-level crossing, you know, Brio is the lovely wooden train set. You give them a lovely little level crossing kit. It's a great present, it's a good gift on its own, if they haven't got some trains and some track, that present isn't much good, really. It's a wonderful, good gift, but it only works in the context of having the other stuff around it. 
Singleness is a wonderful, good gift of God, but unless we listen to what he says on various other subjects and broader things, and we live those out too, it doesn't feel like a good gift. It doesn't get experienced like a good gift. So if we want to really make following Jesus as an adult single plausible, then we need to rethink certain things, both in how we think about them and also how we actually live them out. But before I tell you what I think they are, I'm going to give you a few moments, again, back in little groups, have a think, what kind of things do you think we need to get right, both in our thinking and in our living out as churches together, that actually makes being single and being celibate a plausible way of living life? Let's take a few minutes to see if you can get some ideas together, then I'll tell you what I think. Okay, 30 seconds more on this, and then I'll tell you what I think. Okay, so it's a good gift but there's some stuff around it we might need to rethink in how we think about it and how we act about it for it to be experienced as a good gift. There's an awful lot that could be said here, but there are three rethinkings that I'm going to be focusing on today. The first one, we need to rethink sex. We need to rethink God's good gift of sex. Because often we have wrong understandings and ideas about sex which make singleness seem impossible. And that particularly happens as Christians when actually we believe the lies that the world around us believes rather than believing what the Word of God says. There are lots of those, but two perhaps most prominent. The first one is the lie that sex is a genuine need, which can either be it's a biological need, so needed for health, or can be it's a kind of a personhood need. So to be a, a real fully grown adult, you need to be having sex. You see those beliefs in the culture around us, the belief that not having sex is somehow kind of unhealthy, it's repression, you're a repressed person if you're not having sex. You see the uh, kind of personhood idea in films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, where it's this kind of whole joke of this guy is not a real grown-up, he's not had sex, or characters like Sheldon Cooper in The Big Bang Theory, who until he's having sex is deemed this very kind of infantile, kind of childlike figure. However, there are some really big problems with that view. There's a big problem with the view that sex is a biological need in the simple fact it's patently not true. You will never go to the doctor and be diagnosed with having too little sex. It's just not true that sex is a biological need. There are no medical health problems that come from having too little sex. It's also not true that sex is needed to be a true adult. On what authority do we say that? Who says that? What proof is there that in any way sex makes you a better or a more developed adult than not having had sex? And yet many in the church, we still kind of believe these things. We absorb these things from the world around us. And therefore we go, how can God expect some people to live without sex? When it comes to sexuality, we think, well, actually, if following Jesus for most gay people would mean not engaging in a relationship, not having sex, how can that be fair? How can that work if sex is a genuine need? Many of us do believe that line. And we go, I'm not sure what the Bible says works. But the truth is that sex is not a biological need, not only for mental or emotional or physical health. Love is necessary, and we'll get back to that, but sex is not necessary. The second lie, a huge one in our culture around us, is the lie that our sexual desires are our identity. So it's the idea that how you feel is who you are. This is what we might call an internal identity narrative, which is one of the most common ways of making identity in our world, which is a narrative you look inside yourself, you find who you really are, and you need to embrace that and express that to find true fulfillment. And it doesn't matter if what you find inside yourself doesn't match up with what your body says, what your community says, or what history or tradition says. What you are, who you are, how you feel inside is who you really are. 
And so in sexuality, that narrative is applied if you look inside yourself and you find that you're straight or you're gay or you're bisexual or pansexual or asexual, and you need to embrace that and to express that in order to find true fulfilment. And that's a literal narrative you'll see on TV programs and in films. If you read the coming out stories of celebrities, you'll find that literal narrative. And often there's the language of this is who I really am and kind of looking inside myself and embracing my true self. However, there are huge problems with this. This whole internal identity thing, identity based on our feelings and desires, it just doesn't work. It's inherently unstable because our desires and feelings can change. It's a terrible basis in which to build an identity. It's uh, kind of ambiguous because you might have two desires which conflict. If you really want this and you really want that, but you can't have them both, which one is really you? Which one do you need to embrace and to express in order to find true fulfillment? And to be honest, it's just untenable. None of us really believe this. All of us recognize there are some desires we might have which are not good and we would not, we would not say is who we are. So if we walked down the street today and found that we're really bloodthirsty, we really want to kill lots of people, have a deep desire to kill lots of people, we're not in our society going to go, well, that's who I am. It doesn't matter what you say, you can't stop me, you can't stop me being me. We wouldn't actually do that. The reality is we're looking inside ourselves and we kind of pick and choose the desires that fits with what culture tells us we should be. No one really believes this. It just doesn't work as a way of making identity. The truth, the wonderful truth the Bible tells us is that true identity Identity that works, that is solid and stable and life-giving, is identity given by God. It's not achieved, it's received. It's not discovered inside of ourselves, it's received from God. Which ultimately means the Christian identity of being a child of God, a solid, stable identity of knowing we are always and forever children of God, loved and delighted over by our Father. And therefore, we don't need to embrace or express our sexual desires to find true fulfillment. We need to embrace and express life as a child of God to find true fulfillment. So sex isn't necessary for life-giving, uh, for life-giving living. Therefore, celibacy can be a life-giving way of living life. There's no reason why we can't find fullness of life as celibate followers of Jesus. We need to rethink sex and be very aware of what the world is telling us and then the Bible speak more loudly in our ears than the world. Then also we need to rethink love, which is actually quite linked into misunderstandings about sex. You see, often the reason we think we need to have sex is because we think it's the way we're going to experience love, and we need love, and love is only experienced through sex. And that's all based on a misunderstanding, because there's, there's some truth in there. The truth is we do need love. We as human beings are hardwired by God to need human love. That's what happens in Genesis 2, this perfect world. And even notice a perfect relationship between Adam and God, yet it's still not enough. Well, there's still something missing because it's not good for a human to be on their own. So he starts human community. All of us, even the most hardened introvert, is hardwired by God to need genuine human connection, genuine human love. But the mistake of the world around us and of many Christians is to say that actually you need to have sex in order to feel loved. Because in our culture, sex is the only form of intimacy that is actually recognised. And so the assumption is that to be single and celibate will mean being lonely. It will mean being unloved. It will mean a, a life without love. And if you believe the lie that love can only really be experienced through sex, then that is the kind of logical conclusion of it. But again, there are huge problems with this idea. The idea that sex is the only form of intimacy and the only way of feeling love and connecting with another person is completely undermined by history. 
where there would be uh, genuine uh, kind of love expressed, even in same-sex friendships, even non-sexual physical intimacy, actually, throughout history, throughout other cultures today, actually. And you find non-sexual forms of intimacy, actually. It can be genuine love, expressed love, when it's not a romantic relationship, it's not a sexual relationship. Sex is not the only way that we can experience love. And actually, the truth the Bible tells us is that sex is only one way that love can be experienced. And actually, that love can be experienced in church family and in friendship. I find it so striking. When Jesus wants to teach on love, he doesn't use marriage. He doesn't use sex. He uses friendship. He says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He thinks, how can I really help them understand what real love is about? He thinks, oh, it's not marriage. It's not sex. Oh, friendship. Friendships, how I can really show them what love is about. And you think of kind of examples in the Bible, people like Ruth and Naomi and Jonathan and David in the Old Testament, Jesus and the beloved disciple, probably John, in the New Testament, you see examples of genuine, heartfelt love in friendship, expressed and enjoyed. Well, there's no hint of sexual activity or kind of romantic relationship, but there's a genuine uh, relationship of love. And we, uh, as church communities, are meant to be communities of radical love. At the same point in John's Gospel, in John 13, Jesus says to us, as his followers, love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And he's saying this moments after he's washed their feet, which is the actions of a slave in the ancient world. And he's saying this knowing that the very next day he will hang on a Roman cross, dying in their place, taking upon himself all the wrath of God for their sin. And he says, now love each other as I've loved you. This is radical love self-sacrificial love, love which preferences the other, puts the other first. And he says, we are to do that in our friendships with each other. We're to actively seek to love one another. And so there's actually some practical questions for us to ask ourselves there. What does it look like for us to cultivate genuine love and care for people in our friendships and then to actually express that? You can ask yourself the question, how do I make my friend know that I genuinely love them? How do I help them to experience love from me? In my own experience, this has been just such a vital thing, particularly noticing that um, the separation of sex and love. Because as long as the whole issue was about sex, God was saying, I can't have sex, and so it seemed like there was no way forward. When I realized, actually, I don't have a need for sex, but I do have a God-given need for love, and God's put me in context where I can experience the love I'm created to need, suddenly there was a way forward. This is just vitally, vitally important for us to get for sexuality, but to be honest, for celibate singleness, full stop. That yes, we need love, but God's person context so we can receive that without needing sex, without needing romantic relationship. It's getting this kind of thing right that makes singleness a, a context that we really can thrive in. It helps us to experience it as the good gift that the Bible says it is. So we need to rethink sex, we need to rethink love, and then finally, and again relatedly, we need to rethink family. Often our uh, assumption that singles can't thrive and it can't be a good life-giving way of living life is because we think singles are denied the opportunity to have family and to live in family. And again, it feeds into the assumption of singleness will mean isolation and it will mean loneliness and not being loved. And I think we get to that point because in the culture around us, and again also often in the church, we have a very narrow idea of family. There's that phrase, um, an Englishman's house is his castle. But I think you could reword it to an Englishman's family is his castle. And we kind of make nuclear families these closed units. And nuclear family means kind of mum and dad and a few kids. And it's this closed off thing. And it's often a target for us. The aim is to have your little nuclear family to gather together to draw up the drawbridge. And that's your thing. That's your family time together. That's what everyone's looking for. 
But that, of course, automatically leaves singles excluded and isolated and alone and without family. But when you look in the New Testament, the biblical picture is very, very different. The biblical picture is church as family, that we actually are family together. And notice it's we are family, not we're like family. This is an identity issue. We've been adopted as God's children, which means we are siblings together. So this is already who we are. Whether you like it or not, we're stuck together. We are family. It's our identity. But of course, we know that living as family is very different from just being a family. We know that by the way things work, everybody's born with biological family. But very sadly, not everybody gets to experience family life with their biological family. In the same way, we're already family by nature of our identity, but it's a very different thing for us to live as family and to kind of put that into practice. And so that's what we need to do. We need to have open lives and open homes, actually sharing our lives with one another, which normally I think looks like doing normal stuff, normal life, but doing it with other people. That's what most of family life is like, isn't it? Family life isn't kind of laying on a great banquet and getting out the candelabra and polishing the finest silver and all this stuff. Family life is doing very normal stuff, but doing it together. And so we all, whether single or married, you think of practical ways, how do we actually live as and be family together? It's not about entertaining people, it's just about being hospitable and opening up hearts and families and homes and welcoming people into it. Which means, I think, doing what you normally do, but invite others to do it with you. So you might be going on a trip to Ikea, you invite people to go with you. You might be having pizza and watching Britain's Got Talent, invite people to join you. You might be walking the dog or... I know, painting a room or what have I done recently? Returning library books we did recently. Whatever you're doing, just invite others to do it with you and being family together. And for singles, that's so wonderful because we get to experience family. And I think I actually get to experience a richer experience of family life than many of my married friends do because I get to be involved in so many different families, actually. And that's great for us as singles because we get to experience family, get to experience love. We get to be involved in the lives of children. It's also really great for married people and for families, because married people need friends too. And single people can be really good friends to married people. And actually children thrive from the input of more than just their parents, and the parents sometimes get a little bit of a break, so everyone's a winner. It's a wonderful thing when we begin to live as the family that we're called to be. And so we need to rethink family, recognising this is who we are, but actually not just thinking, it's also action. It's putting into action, this is who we are. And so therefore, we're going to step into that, act upon that, and we become a place where everybody gets to experience that. And again, for me, this has been vital. In those years I had up north, that impact in you, I kind of talked about where I began to work through the practicality of what does this look like, how does this work. Actually, a few families in particular who really welcomed me into their lives and their homes and the lives of their children helped me to begin to see, oh, I can be single and celibate, and that doesn't mean I don't have family. It doesn't mean I miss out on family. And they took me on holiday and taught me to drive and fed me countless meals and all kind of things. And I looked after their kids and all these kind of things actually were just doing normal stuff but doing it together. And I thought, this can work. I've got a family, even though I don't have a partner, even though I don't have children. Church family is part of God's solution, actually, or God's better story for our need for genuine love. So singleness is good. The Bible says it. It's really clear for us after Jesus. Jesus has changed everything. Singleness is a good thing, which means the gospel is good news for single people. The gospel is good news for gay people, and it means that for everyone, whether married or single, following Jesus is a good and life-giving way of living life. But the reality is there's a whole load of stuff we've often got our thinking wrong on. 
got our actions wrong on, which mean that this wonderful gift God has given us just doesn't quite work, or it doesn't quite sit right, it can feel difficult and uncomfortable. It can feel like we're trying to survive rather than, trying to, rather than thriving as Christian singles. And so all of us, whether married or single, whether young or old, have a part to play in this. And I really do mean that. Often for us as singles, it's easy to sit around and think, well, when are the married people going to start looking after us and being family for us and all of that? When actually we're just as cool as our married friends are to love and to care and to be family, to share life and all of that stuff. This is, a, this is a whole church family thing. Every one of us playing our part. And if you think about it, I'm convinced that in our churches, if everyone just took a little step to doing this kind of stuff and being family, if everyone did it, so everyone had family, it would kind of just snowball immediately like that, actually. It takes for all of us to say, actually, yeah, I'm going to live out my identity, actually. So I'm going to put this into practice. So I guess the challenge I want to lay before you this evening is, what can you do? What is it that God's laying in your heart now? Who is God laying in your heart? Or what is God laying in your heart? Or what that you do in your weekly routine is God revealing to you or hinting to you, actually, why don't you invite someone to come and do that? Or maybe it's some of the thinking stuff. Maybe actually there's just God's revealed to you tonight, just lies you're believing that have made you think, actually, I feel really sorry for my single friends because of this. And actually God's saying, actually, rightly understood and rightly lived out, this could be a, a wonderful thing for your friends. I'd love just to pray for us that God would help us to put this into action, that God would just kind of settle some of the stuff he's spoken to us and that we have a good chunk of time really for some Q&A after that. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for your wonderful goodness to us. We thank you for your good gifts of marriage and your good gift of singleness. Thank you that both are wonderful ways that you've designed for us and you gift to us as ways that we can thrive in life that we can enjoy life in following you and enjoy life together. And Lord God, we do say, especially on this issue of singleness, we recognise that often we've just not quite had things right. We've thought wrongly about it and we've not had all this stuff around the side in place. And we do ask tonight, Lord, please would we better take hold of the challenge we've heard from your word. And please would we put this into action. Would we be people who recognise our identity as family together and who are able to step into that, that everyone might know love, everyone might know family, everyone might find their place. I do pray, Lord, for Woodside, that this would be a community where every person gets to feel at home. Every person gets to thrive with you, regardless of being single or married, or being gay or straight. Would this be a place where people find the good news of fullness of life in you, and where your gifts can be enjoyed to their very fullest? Let me just pray right now, Lord, I pray as you've kind of highlighted things to us, if you've laid things on individual hearts, if you've laid people and situations or highlighted lies, Holy Spirit, we just pray, would you come and do a, a kind of cementing work in that? Would you lay down the challenges? Would you lay down the encouragements? And I pray, Lord, when we do come to leave this place tonight, Lord, would you cause those things to continue to just dwell with us and that we would be prompted to take action and to take hold of all you've got for us, we ask. In your precious name, amen. You've been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.